This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. And you can also get it wherever you might go for your podcast fix and uh, as we get closer to uh, conference tournament week and then the NCAA tournament, uh, spring training underway, uh, we'll get into a very busy time as we hit the spring. So we'll get to some emails in a minute. But first, let me start with the Knicks. Um, you know, this year, when the Knicks got Brunson, I told you that it was the best move they made in a very long time, that you would love Brunson. Step number two is getting hot because he solidified the rotation. Now, Brunson's a leader. He's the key guy to the team and would be a great number two on a championship-type team. They have to find that player that can be the one. Randall's not good enough, and, he, and his game does not get lifted in the playoffs, and he's been exposed in the playoffs in the past. Um, but the Knicks right now are finally doing something that we haven't seen in a long time. As I told you when I've been asked about the Knicks, I said, I will not take the Knicks seriously until they start winning at home. Well, that has happened. First of all, with Hart here, they haven't lost. Secondly, they've won seven straight games. They've won six straight at home. They finally have started to win at home, which was incredibly a, a big issue for them. They could not win in their building. You have to be able to have a distinct advantage on your home court. And now that is coming for the Knicks. Brunson's leadership is, and his play has been just outstanding. But you're seeing some things here. Now that the rotation is solidified, you're seeing an intensity. You're seeing a cohesiveness. You're seeing them play well on both ends of the floor. You're seeing them be intense and unselfish. I mean, look at last night as an example. 47 points in the first quarter. No longer blowing big leads, 142 points for the game. Brunson 15-18 from the floor on 39-point performance. Hart diving in the stands with a big lead. That is symbolic of what is going on right now. Seven straight wins. Now the team is fun again. Now the team is worth watching again, and there's something going on here. There's no question about it. Something going on here. So... We'll see how far it goes, but this weekend will be a big challenge. Friday night in Miami, Sunday night in primetime in Boston. This will be a big, big challenge for them the next couple of days to kind of send a, just see exactly where they are. Now, the streak's not going to go on forever, but you know what? The way they are playing, the way they are playing is, is fun, and it's, it's something that you have to be excited about. It's been a long time coming, and listen, they are not yet ready to beat the best in basketball. They are not yet ready to to compete for a title, but they no longer are 
a joke going into the playoffs or a punchline going into the playoffs. This team will hold its head high the rest of the season, I believe. And it's going to be fun to watch. All right, emails. You go to MikeFrancesPodcast at gmail.com. Send them to MikeFrancesPodcast at gmail.com. And remember, for all of your wagering needs, it's Bet Rivers in New York and New Jersey. Play Sugar House in Connecticut. And I know the folks at Bet Rivers are putting together a interesting contest for you for the NCAA tournament. So for those of you that like to get involved in March Madness, and why wouldn't you? Because it's a great event. It's a great 17-day self-contained event. Let's be honest. The college basketball season doesn't offer a lot all season, but it offers an incredible amount of intensity over those 17 days. And it will again, and this year, wide open. I mean, absolutely as wide open as any NCAA tournament we've had in a very long time. All right, Andrew and Williston Park's thoughts. What was your favorite year growing up with the Yankees? Which was your favorite team? Well, I mean, I've always been a Yankee fan if you mean that, but if you mean one Yankee team, I'm going to surprise you. It wasn't one of the great teams. Uh, The Mantle years when they were still good, I was too young. I was young enough to follow, but, you know, I was still a little, I mean, I was, you know, six, seven years old when, you know, I was six years old in, in, in 61. So, I mean, I remember 62 when Mantle won the MVP. I remember 63. I remember 64 vividly. And then the lean years when Mantle was there as just really a relic of things, you know, a relic of a, a time gone, gone past, really, as he stayed around for four years. And the only thing that mattered was him hitting a home run and getting closer to 500 home runs and stuff like that. But those 65 through 68 teams were dreadful. But then they got competitive again, at least where they could compete. And the 60, the 72 team, which was a wild pennant race, the first time there was a uh, problem in the season with the union, there was a week off in the beginning of the season. Everybody in the division was in it. The Yankees had trouble with Gaylord Perry all year, but they won a lot of big games. You had Mercer. You had the trade for Nettles. You made all those big trades with the Indians. You had Munson. And the 72 team was a team that was near and dear to my heart, even though it wasn't a very good team. It was an okay team. It was a competitive team. But if you give me the championship teams, the 96 team was my favorite because they hadn't won in a long, long time, and that was a wonderful team. It really was. Richard emails from the teams that were good when we were kids, the Tigers, the Orioles, the Reds, the Pirates. Do you find it heartbreaking that these franchises are in baseball's basement every year and will they ever recover? Well, they can recover. They're not pinned there. They're pinned there by their own idea of how to run a franchise. Some people are in the business of running a franchise where they take it to get by without spending a whole lot of money and they're looking to increase their investment over a period of years and just get by year after year and spend as little as possible. You're seeing that with some teams and you're seeing that with some owners who can do a lot better. Some of the owners 
are very wealthy who don't spend money. Personally wealthy. But they don't have to spend money. But they can be better if they want to be better. Will they be better again? Hey, some of them are not in big markets. Some of them don't have great stadium situations. So that can be a detriment. Baseball, it's not all the same like the NFL is. You are not taking the bulk of the revenue and dividing it equally. It's not happening that way. That's why you have certain things that help the teams that create fewer dollars. But they don't have to be that way, not year after year. They sometimes choose to be that way. I think the Orioles right now, as an example, are coming out of it. You saw the Astros be dreadful for a while and then come out of it and be the dominant team in baseball. So it can happen. Jason emails, which Nick rivalry did you enjoy watching more, Nick's Pacers or Nick's Heat and why? Well, you didn't, ask, you didn't put Nick's Bulls in there, so I figure you're asking me about the other two. Nick's Pacers, Nick's Heat. I liked Nick's Pacers. I, I, I am not in any way discarding Nick's Heat, which was much more physical, very, very low-scoring and defensive-oriented. But what I liked about Nick's paces were I thought the teams were exceedingly, exceedingly equal, very well balanced, good matchups inside the game. So I thought there was a lot there. And you also had the dynamic of a late clutch shooter who could break hearts in Reggie Miller. So I liked the Nick's paces a lot. I really did. I thought there was a lot of dramatic basketball there. Brendan emails, the acquisition of Hart has been great so far, sure has. They have improved their play at the Garden, which has been a struggle for them, sure has. How far do you think the Knicks can go? Can they beat Boston and Philly? I don't think they can beat the Celtics in the playoff series. I think they could beat Philly uh, with a, in a punch's chance. I don't think they're as good as either one of them. They're not as good as the Bucks. Philly or Boston. They have room to improve. But like I said, I think this team, built as it is right now, being run the way it is right now, and getting the leadership it's getting right now from especially Brunson, I think it can do well, and, and maybe even surprise in the playoffs. So from that standpoint, I'm very much interested in how they finish the season. I think they will finish the season strong, barring an injury, and I think they're going to be very, very, very interesting to watch in the postseason. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't think they're a championship team. Don't get crazy. But I think they are going to have their moments this year. Andy asks, Casa Creed ran so well last weekend. Uh, yeah, he did. Uh, can you give us your thoughts as he was charging down the center of the lane? Well, him making charges in sprints is who he is. He is a great closing turf sprinter. He is a 
turf sprinter of the highest order. He is, I think, the best turf sprinter in the United States. He is a dynamic closer at six furlongs. And I have to tell you, he is alluding to the race last week in the Middle East for a million and a half dollars where Casa was flying as a Japanese horse that had, who had shook clear. And now we were the only ones really running at him. There was one other horse running for third, but he was not going to catch us. And we, the question was whether we were going to catch the front runner. And I can tell you, when we hit the wire, I thought we, we had won. I know that Saez, who's a great jock, told us that he thought he had won. And he said he usually is right about those. He actually was shocked that he didn't win. And he didn't win. I mean, we were flying at the finish. The Japanese horse ran a great race. We have had two of those races to Japanese horses the last two years. The Japanese horses have been very dominant in, in, in that competition now, especially this year. Um, it was a tough beat. Now, he's an amazing animal. He's had a great career. He's given us so many thrills and won so many big races. He'll be back on Belmont Stakes Day to try to become the first horse ever to win the Jiper, which is a grade one sprint on the turf at Belmont three years in a row. He's won it the last two years. He'll try to win it three years in a row. He is seven years old, so this could be his last year. He'll go to Saratoga where he runs so well and race again, probably in the four-star Dave, because there's not a big sprint race at Saratoga. It's not set up for that. So we'll probably go in the mile, which we won last year, the four-star Dave. Um, he's had an amazing career. He really has. He hasn't loved Keeneland. He hasn't run well in the Breeders' Cup. That's the only thing he hasn't done. He hasn't shown his best in the Breeders' Cup, but he is a multiple grade one winner at six furlongs. He's won at a mile, a grade one. He's a multiple grade one winner. He's going to win over $2 million for his career. Uh, he's had a, a remarkable career. He really has. And if you follow us, uh, as far as the horses go, High Oak is back. Quite ironically, it was the Fountain of Youth, which is a derby prep, that was last year the race where High Oak almost lost his life because he was interfered with, and he did a somersault and he almost died. Um, he hasn't run since. We've waited a year. He'll be on the card in an allowance race against one of the horses that was in that race last year, White Abario, who is going to tune up in that same race. That's our first race back, and it will be this week, and we're really looking forward to High Oak having a big four-year-old campaign. So it starts this coming weekend, and we're very excited about that. Lee and I very excited about having uh, uh, Hi having High Oak back, and we expect we're hoping for big things from him. Casa has been a blessing. There's no question about it. You know, you you get a horse like Casa, you know, maybe once if you're lucky, twice in a lifetime. I mean, this is a horse who never misses a workout. Is always ready to race, always tries his hardest. Uh, is as solid as Hickory. He is, he's like an old-time horse. He really is. He does, does nothing wrong. 
is a wonderful, wonderful horse. He really is. And High Oak, we know, has a lot of talent. We just hope we can keep him healthy and and have a big four-year-old season with him. We thought we had a horse that would have would have distinguished himself in the Derby if he had been healthy. It didn't happen. That's racing. Paul from Huntington, would you rather sign Car? Uh, would you rather sign uh, Car for three years or Jones for five years if you're the Giants? I, listen, I don't think the Giants aren't going to sign Jones. I think they will sign Jones. I don't know if anybody thought Jones was going to be easy. Why would he? This is a second contract for a quarterback. These are all big dollar contracts. And the Giants are trying to make sure they have enough money to do what they want to do. They still have a lot of rebuilding to do. And they have to sign him and uh, and Barkley. Um, I think the Giants would prefer the five years because it gives them a chance to maximize the signing bonus over the maximum years with the five-year deal. The minimum you're looking at for, for Jones is $35 million a year. That's the minimum. He's going to get that. I know he wants 45. I don't think he will get that. If you're asking me to put a number on it, I will put a number that puts it somewhere around $38 million, which will put it at a hundred and Put it at $190 million for five years. That's about where I think they'll land. And I would, so that I can maximize the signing bonus, give them five years. I think they're committed to Jones as their quarterback. If they're not, it's really back to the drawing board. And Carr's got a lot of places he can go. I mean, let's be honest. If Rodgers ever retires comes out of this and says, I'm not playing. Now, I don't think that's going to happen because he's got so much money coming to him. And I don't think he's going to turn that money down. So I do think Rodgers will play. I don't think he's going to play for the Jets. I think he's either going to play in Green Bay or the Raiders. I think he'll probably play in Green Bay if he plays. Um, He's got a lot of money coming to him. You're talking about $150 million plus over three years. I don't think he's going to give that up. He's not going to make that money again, so I doubt he's going to give it up. So I know he's talking about that. He's being very cryptic, and he's brought retirement into it, but I think the way he's handled it has been utterly ridiculous. It's made him look foolish. Uh, Listen, say nothing till you're ready to say something. This whole idea of you know spending days in the darkness and all this other stuff – makes him look like a weirdo. That's what it does. It makes him look like someone you don't even want to do business with, despite the fact he is a all-time great at the position. But he comes off as a guy who you think is just out there in the ozone, and nobody wants to give a guy who's out in the ozone $50 million a year to play. But we all know he's a proven commodity at the position. But if he's out, if he retires, Carr is going to make himself a lot. A lot of money. And the Giants better be sure to nail Jones down. And I would do it before before uh, Rodgers makes his decision. Because if Rodgers retires, all of a sudden Jones' stock goes way up. And he can start playing hardball with the Giants. And the Giants shouldn't want that. Carr is going to use two or three franchises against one another. There's no question about that. If he doesn't, he's silly. 
And like I said, if Rogers retires, Carter's in the driver's seat, but so is so is Jones. You know what? And to a lesser extent, so was Geno Smith off last year. Mike and Bridgewater, a few, after only a few spring training games, we've already seen a game decided by the pitch clock violation. Baseball cannot let this happen. Why does Manfred seem intent on destroying the game? Listen, I have purposely stayed away from this. I didn't want to judge this stuff off the spring training games because I don't think there's anything real about the spring training games neither in intensity, neither in pace, neither in the level of the talent on the field, especially early in spring training. I want to see the real players in a real game before I look at that, all the things that have changed in baseball this year. So I want to use April to make my judgment. And remember, if just because they are accentuating from an umpire's standpoint the rules in spring training does not mean they are going to accentuate them in the regular season. They probably are accentuating them by decree, hoping to get everybody used to them. And then they'll back off when the regular season starts. That's, that's just common sense. But I need to look at these in real games. So everyone has asked me to make opinions. I'm not going to make opinions on this stuff based on spring training games. I'm not going to do it. So I want to watch this unfold for a month. And then I will give you my opinions of where baseball is with all the different nuances and everything that's going to go on. You need to see it in real games with real players playing meaningful games. Spring training games are not going to be a good barometer. That's like using a a preseason NFL game for any kind of analysis. It's ridiculous. There's no reason to do it. They're not real games. They're not played with real intensity. They're not played at the real speed. And they're not played by real players half the times. By guys who are going to be in the major leagues performing. So we need to utilize the first month of the season. I think I need to see 30 games on the schedule. to, And then I'll make a decision of where everything is. And not before. Because to do it before is silly. It makes no sense. Matt from Maryland, uh, who do you think the winning bidder f- will be for the Washington NFL franchise? Well, listen, how does anybody reasonably expect anybody but Bezos to come out the winner when one of the bidders is one of the richest men in the world who doesn't have, okay, a couple of billion dollars? You know, everyone's going gaga over the fact that Cohen has $16 billion. Well, Bezos has, depending on where Amazon stock is on a given day, has $100-plus billion or more. That's right, $100 billion. So you're talking about someone who is now in the stratosphere, even compared to a guy like Cohen. He, Cohen is, is a 10-percenter compared to Bezos. Now you're talking about a guy who's up there with, you know, Buffett and Gates and Musk and guys like that who are worth hundreds of billions of dollars on paper based on their portfolios. I understand their portfolios are down. 
I understand Amazon stock is way down from where it was. I mean, it's gone almost down in half. It's $91 a share after the 24-1 stock split. It's $91 a share. So, I mean, when Amazon's up back at 140 or 150, and it will be, Bezos is worth a fortune more. He can almost double what he has now. But he still has an extreme amount of money. So I can't, in realistic terms, expect anybody. Here's the way I will say it. If Bezos wants it, he's got it. It's his. He's bidding cab fare for him. Whether the franchise costs him $6 billion, $7 billion, $8 billion, whatever it is in Washington because of their situation with the stadium and everything, is a very expensive franchise. But still, it's always been one of the best, worth the most on paper. It's always at the top. But so what? The man has... A fortune. That's not, it's not even, you know, he could pay for that out of his back pocket. Other people, they have to go out and get partners. They have to go out and get loans. They have to go out and borrow some money there. Now, NFL makes them have nowadays a billion in real money. At least the lead guy's got to be a billionaire. But hey, this guy's not a billionaire. This guy has a hundred plus billion. Depending on the day, he's been as high as 180 billion or more. So it's all bent on their portfolio at the moment. I mean, in this, where, where, where Tesla is for Musk, where Amazon is for, for Bezos. But you're dealing with someone who has a lot, a lot of money. Evan from New York asks, who will be the next NBA star to push for a trade? I don't know. I haven't really thought about that, to be honest with you. So I don't know who the most unhappy guy is right now. And are you talking about a guy who shapes franchises or just a guy who's a nice player? There aren't that many guys that are around right now who shape franchises. The NBA right now is relatively weak. That's why if Durant is healthy and Phoenix has Durant and Booker, which allows them to have a solid gold, solid gold, all-world scorer on the floor for all 48 minutes in the playoff games, which is a huge advantage. Nobody else has that. Somebody else has two guys who can score like that. LeBron and Davis are close when they're on their games and healthy, which is rare, and the team isn't that good anyway. Um, you add in Aiton to do what he does, Paul to do what he does, and the role players, and they are going to be very tough to keep from winning a championship. They just have to make sure of two things. One Paul hasn't slipped too far because in the fourth quarter, all you need him to do is get to the foul line and distribute the ball. That's it. Get to the foul line. He makes his free throws, which he does, and you don't need him to score. 
You need them to get to the foul line and distribute the ball. The thing they must do is they must keep Aiton motivated on both ends of the floor, especially as a rim protector. Because he can fade in games when he's not an option and offensively he gets lost. He has to be kept in the mix with their two premium scorers. Because so much is going to go through Durant and Booker. But they're a legitimate team that, you know, it's hard to see somebody else winning if they're healthy. I think the Celtics are the best team in the East. But we'll see. There's a couple of teams that can beat them. And the Knicks are going to be fun. They're going to be fun to watch this year, you know? They're moving up on the fourth slot. They have a chance to be a forward factor in the playoffs this year. And like I said, they are not going to embarrass themselves. Doug in New York, yes, I know that they have a massive payroll. They do. I was talking about the Mets. But I think everyone is just assuming the Mets are going to be a great team and that they'll be there at the end. I'm not sold on the offense. I'm not saying Korea was the answer, but they needed one more slugger. Listen, I think they are still, for a team that has that kind of payroll, they are way too, way too dependent on Alonzo and Lindor than they should be. They should have better balance in the lineup than they do. They're still very much... Now, most teams are dependent on their 3-4 hitters, yes. But when you have a payroll like they have, you expect to have the kind of lineup that the Yankees used to have, where they had guys in the bottom of the lineup who could wreck you, where they had guys batting ninth who had you know, 98 RBIs. That's or the old Red Sox lineups. We had guys who were really good hitters in the ninth spot. Or in the old days where the Yankees used to have a star batting ninth. The Mets don't have that kind of top-to-bottom lineup. They need Marte to be healthy, and they still have to answer some questions at positions. But they have, you know, Nimmo's going to do a good job leading off. He's going to get on base. He's going to score runs. He's very capable of scoring 100 runs and doing a good job. Marte is a big key. He was missed sorely last year. He's a very big key. They need one more big right-handed bat. I don't know what they think they can get out of Escobar. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. McNeil's a really good guy to have down in the 5-6 spot as a guy who can bat 320, hit his home runs, do his good things. He's a good player. He's a very solid hitter. And he's a real hitter. He's a real legitimate guy who can bat 320. Especially when he uses the whole field and does the things that he has to do. So they are a team that obviously is built around their two starting pitchers and their closer. But, hey, that's what it comes down to. You know, last year all we wanted to do was put that in those guys' hands, put it in the hands of DeGrom and Scherzer and say, get out of the way. Well, they put it in the hands of DeGrom and Scherzer and they didn't do the job. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They delivered it right where they were supposed to deliver it. I understand they fell apart at the end of the season in the regular season. I understand what happened in Atlanta. But the bottom line is they still were in the perfect position to do what they needed to do, and they didn't get the job done in the postseason.
And if Verlander shows they don't do the job, they're not going to win. Case closed. Just like if the Yankees don't get it out of their one-two spots in their rotation, led by Cole, they're not going to win. You have to come up big in the postseason. Elevate your game in the postseason. Not hope you play somewhere near what you did during the regular season. Listen, the Yankees and Mets are both going to win 95 games. A bad year would be 92. A good year is 97, 98. They'll be right around there. And then the question is, do the guys show up and perform on the level that is needed to get to a World Series? The Yankees, it's about getting past one team. The National League, it's about more than that because there are legitimate teams there. I mean, San Diego, the Dodgers, the Braves, the Phillies, and, of course, the Mets, maybe even sprinkling the Cardinals. Every round is tougher in the National League than it is in the American League, but in the American League, they've got the biggest team to go through, a team that they can't get to past in the Houston team. And I don't think they've gotten past them yet. And I don't think right now they're as good as them. The Yankees have question marks. Third base, shortstop, left field, bullpen. As we said, as we head towards the weekend, as we head towards conference tournaments next week, as we head towards the NCAA tournament with the selection show a week from this Sunday. Uh, And remember, Bet Rivers is putting together some good stuff for the tournament, so be looking for that. And one last thing. Last night, and I knew it was going to be a lopsided game because Creighton had lost two games in a row, and Georgetown looks like it had given it up the last couple of weeks. Creighton was beating Georgetown 19-0. They were beating them 80-40 with 10 minutes left when they called the dogs off, and they beat them 99-59. 99-59. I was thinking about the Hoya teams in the old days with John Thompson and the great defensive teams that the Hoyas had in the days of Hoya Destroyer and Hoya Saxon. I think I thought last night, man, Gene Smith, wherever he is, and I guess he does a Hoya podcast somewhere, who was a great defensive guard who could just stop just stop a guard on the other team. You know, the best defensive backcourt in the history of college basketball, by most people's account, was Buckner and Wilkerson on the great Indiana team. They were an incredible, physical, dynamic backcourt. Wilkerson's length and quickness, Buckner's toughness. But Gene Smith was as good a on-the-ball man-to-man defender in the backcourt as I can ever remember seeing in college basketball. He could dominate a game without scoring. I remember some of the shows they put on, like the game against Kentucky and Seattle when they held Kentucky scoreless for 12 minutes in the second half. Never forget that game. Joby Hall flipped his program into the stands in frustration. Um... That tells you how far Georgetown has slipped and makes you think more and more that, yes, they uh, have been heating up the lines to New Rochelle, which is where Iona is and where Rick Pitino is. So don't be surprised by that. We'll see you down the road. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. 
Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan, and you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts.